Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 15, Ancient Egypt, The New Kingdom. Let's go back and catch up with our chronological story of ancient Egypt so far. In around the 32nd century BCE, we believe that a unification process took place which united Upper and Lower Egypt to form one kingdom. We believe that it was the Upper Egyptians who instigated this, and this may explain why the capital city was at a place called Thinis, which we guess may have been close to the upper Egyptian city of Abydos. It wasn't until the 27th century BCE that we see an acceleration of wealth and power, culminating in what we now refer to as the Old Kingdom of Egypt. The Old Kingdom is characterised by the pyramids that we find near the new capital city of Memphis, much nearer to the Nile Delta in Lower Egypt. The pyramids symbolise the devotion of the Egyptian people to their living deities and pharaohs for whom the pyramids were built as their final resting place and their portal to the afterlife. Eventually though, the administrative divisions called gnomes decided to assert a will of independence and the power of the pharaohs waned in the face of drought and famine, and the Egyptian kingdom broke apart during the 22nd century BCE. Ultimately, it would be the Thebans, so-called because they were based at the upper Egyptian city of Thebes, who would assert their authority over the neighbouring gnomes, thus resulting in a reunification of the Egyptians and a new golden age called the Middle Kingdom. This time, the pharaohs and their viziers would have to accept that the gnomes would retain a small degree of autonomy by comparison to the Old Kingdom. The Middle Kingdom pharaohs earned their respect through expansion of the Egyptian lands, but ultimately it would be a migration of Semitic peoples who we call the Hyksos, who took control of a weakened and fragmented Egypt, which brings us to what we call the second intermediate period of Egypt. And this is where we will pick up our story. Papyrus One of the last things we spoke about during episode 13 on the Middle Kingdom was the use of the papyrus plant to manufacture sheets on which Egyptians could write. And it is thanks to some 19th century trading that took place between Europeans and Africans that papyri from ancient Egyptian times are now in our possession. And thanks to those experts who have worked out how to translate these documents, we have discovered a lot about the intellectual progress of these people. 
We previously discussed the Rind mathematical papyrus as something that could date back to the Middle Kingdom. But it could also just as easily date to the Second Intermediate Period, which followed. We could say similar things about other papyri, such as the Edwin Smith papyrus and the Ebers papyrus, which are two texts regarding ancient Egyptian medical theory. We could be forgiven for thinking that this knowledge could have been brought into Egypt by the Hyksos people of the Asiatic lands who took control of Lower Egypt, but with evidence of older papyri and the evidence of advanced architecture such as the pyramids, it would be fair to say that a good amount of intelligence existed in Egypt in any case. However, we do know that there were healthy and extensive trade links between all of the cultures of the Fertile Crescent and beyond, as materials can be found as far away from their places of origin, such as obsidian and lapis lazuli, just to give two examples. So in that case, who's to say that cultures were not also trading knowledge for resources? Could the Asiatics have been buying knowledge about pyramid building to aid them in their ziggurat constructions, for example. It is likely that we will never know this for sure, but certainly there has been a price on intelligence for as far back as modern humans may imagine. What is probably interesting is that if the dating of these papyri are accurate and point heavily towards the second intermediate period and the Hyksos occupation of Egypt, then it doesn't appear that it put a stop to the exchange of knowledge and ideas. It appears that society was functioning reasonably well during the civil unrest, and this may further support the more revisionist idea that the Hyksos invasion was not nearly as violent as past historians may lead us to believe. Thebes and the Hyksos it does appear that the Hyksos did try to extend their dominance up the River Nile from their power base in Lower Egypt to the lands of Upper Egypt where they put an end to the Theban 16th dynasty. Let's just briefly discuss the Hyksos before we move forward with the story because they are very interesting if for no other reason because they are very mysterious. The word Hyksos is a modification of the phrase that the Egyptians used in their glyphic writing which would translate as the rulers of foreign lands which can be assumed to be the Asiatic lands through the writings found on tomb artwork. Some sources suggest that the Hyksos may be related to Amorite people who were simply turning their attention west it did suggest that the Hyksos potentially did not overcome the Egyptians through violence, but I do need to be careful here as a friendly guide at the British Museum pointed out to me that the Hyksos most likely did bring superior weaponry, especially in the form of chariots, which would suggest that the Egyptian had not seen the likes of before. One way or the other, the Hyksos did take the lands of Lower Egypt for themselves and established a 15th dynasty which replaced the Egyptian 13th and the Asiatic 14th. After the Hyksos went to Upper Egypt and gave the Theban 16th dynasty a good hiding, they withdrew to protect the centre of their Egyptian power base back in Lower Egypt. 
the Thebans of Upper Egypt would start to rebuild under the leadership of Pharaoh Rahotep, the first of the 17th dynasty. Rahotep would command the restoration of the damaged temple of the Egyptian fertility god called Min. This would excite the 17th dynasty into re-establishing their power in Upper Egypt while the Hyksos consolidated their position in Lower Egypt. The last pharaoh of the 17th dynasty was Kamos, who ruled at around 1550 BCE. His reign was brief, but it was very significant. Steely, relating to the reign of Kamos, detail how he travelled northwards down the river Nile and pushed the Hyksos back to their heartlands in the Nile Delta. The Hyksos even appear to have tried to appeal to the Cushites for help to combat the Thebans, but this did not prevent the ultimate fate of the Hyksos taking place. The last Hyksos pharaoh of the 15th dynasty was Kamudi, and it was Kamos's brother, Armos I, who defeated Kamudi, expelling him from Egypt reunifying the Egyptians once again and beginning the period we refer to today as the New Kingdom of Egypt. We actually mentioned Armos I in the previous podcast on pyramids. He was the New Kingdom Pharaoh who tried to bring back the Egyptian tradition of pyramid building but no one else seemed particularly interested in reviving this old tradition which probably required more work than they were worth at a time when time was better spent on other things such as consolidating the New Kingdom's military strength. Cushites and Cataracts Now then, we really must look more closely at these two things in order to develop an understanding about what we are talking about. Why do we call these people south of Upper Egypt the Cushites and not the Nubians? Why do we talk about cataracts? And aren't they something that affect your eyes? Firstly, let's talk about cataracts. Cataracts are a condition where the lens of your eye goes cloudy and it can affect your vision. This cloudiness is like a disturbance of the vision, a bit like a cataract of the Nile is a disturbance of the flow of the Nile. The cataracts are areas of shallow water flows and are a bit like areas of the river where you might go white water rafting. So it is quite shallow and rocky and it would have been a very notable landmark of the Nile as it would have been difficult to commute by boat. The first cataract of the Nile is to be found further south than modern day Luxor, which is the site of ancient Thebes. So the Egyptians traditionally with their dominance of the traversable fertile lands of the Nile, would have found it easy to rule over and govern the area of the Nile north of the first cataract and throughout Egypt up to the Nile Delta in the north. Everyone south of this first cataract were comparatively foreign. This is the area that we have referred to as Nubia and is inhabited by the Nubians. Now this is where it gets confusing, so I'll attempt to speak in very simple terms. The first cataract of the Nile is at 
Aswan and it is the area south of Aswan which is the south of the modern country of Egypt and then the area further south right up to the modern Sudanese capital city of Khartoum which is traditionally referred to as Nubian and anyone from this area since the Neolithic age is considered to be of Nubian stock. The first culture spoken of from this region are the Kerma culture which emerged during the 3rd millennium BCE and it is considered by some scholars to be a precursor to the later Kingdom of Kush which emerged by the 11th century BCE and actually conquered Egypt in the 8th century BCE. So when we speak of the Kushites now we are speaking of the culture of the people of the lands of Nubia. So you can compare it to the Sumerians being a culture of Mesopotamians from Mesopotamia. The Kushites are a culture of Nubians from Nubia. The Kushites were the peoples south of the first cataract of the Nile and they needed to be dealt with as they were very troublesome to the Thebans. Armos the first had successfully chased the Hyksos from Egypt but now he had to deal with the Kushite rebels who had been willing to make alliances with anybody who opposed the Thebans. Armos crushed all of the Kushite rebellions and managed to restore Egyptian rule to the lands south of the first cataract for the first time since the demise of the Middle Kingdom. Ultimately, the New Kingdom would penetrate further than the second cataract of the Nile, which was the extent of the Old and Middle Kingdoms, and it would subjugate the lands all the way to the fourth cataract, where the city of Napata was established. The Theban Necropolis During episode 13 on the Middle Kingdom, we mentioned the Theban Necropolis, which is the burial site of those brave Theban soldiers who defeated the Heracleopolitans and were therefore given a respectfully ceremonial burial. The exact location for this mass ceremonial burial is at Deir al-Bihari, within what we refer to today as the Theban Necropolis. The soldiers were the men of the Theban army, which was under the leadership of the 11th dynasty pharaoh, Mentuhotep II. The pharaoh accredited with the unification of Egypt at the beginning of the Middle Kingdom. Mentuhotep had a mortuary temple for himself at Deir el-Bihari, which would prove to be an inspiration for the New Kingdom pharaohs. We mentioned in the last podcast on pyramids that the first New Kingdom pharaoh, Armos I, had a pyramid built as a cenotaph, but this did not catch on and the tombs of the Theban necropolis did. The simplest explanation of the Theban necropolis is a collection of sites which contain temples and tombs carved into the undulating limestone rock faces. One of the most well-known sections of this necropolis is the Valley of the Kings. Most of the artefacts have been removed, leaving us without any discoveries. However, many of the royal tombs have been decorated, which give us some clues about everyday life, traditions and beliefs. They point towards yet another golden age of Egypt, where the elite 
were able to enjoy the spoils of wealth and power as had been the case during previous periods of success. Let us walk through the earliest pharaohs of the 18th dynasty in the New Kingdom and see what relationship, if any, they had with the Theban necropolis. So we mentioned that midway through the 16th century BCE, Armos I acquired the throne from his brother Carmos, and that this signified the dawn of a reunified Egypt, the expulsion of the Hyksos and the control of the Kushites. Armos's body was found in a mummified state within a coffin at Deir el-Bihari, although it is suggested that his body had actually been moved to this location a few hundred years after his death, so he would have been buried somewhere else. His pyramid is believed to have been a monument as opposed to a tomb. Armos I was succeeded by his son Amenhotep I, who would have a mortuary temple built at Deir el-Bihari, but this would not be his final resting place. The intention was for that to be built somewhere else, and it is speculated that this may have been to throw those pesky tomb raiders off the scent. It is not known where his tomb actually was, but his mummified remains were eventually kept alongside those of his father at Deir el-Bihari. Amenhotep would be deified on his death, and many generations would follow traditions held in his name, such as feasts, and festivals. Amenhotep's successor was Thutmose I, who was possibly a son of Amenhotep. Thutmose I is recorded to have extended the borders of Egypt deeper into the Levant and Nubia, and he also built his own tomb in the Valley of Kings. So we can definitely see that this Theban necropolis which was established was intended to be elaborated on for this new Theban Egyptian power base of the New Kingdom. Thutmose I's son, Thutmose II, was also found at Deir el-Bihari, and Thutmose II also married his half-sister, Hatshepsut, and this was not the first time that we see an incestuous marriage in Egypt, and it has been mentioned before in this podcast. You may recall that the 12th dynasty pharaoh, Senesret I, married his sister around 500 years previous. Upon the death of Thutmose II, Hatshepsut assumed the role of pharaoh herself. And this is the second time that we can definitely state that Egypt had a female pharaoh. The other once again dates back to the 12th dynasty and is called Sobekneferu. The reality is that although the temptation is to become in awe of ourselves at discovering these incestuous marriages and female pharaohs in Egyptian history, it is probably a lot more normalised in ancient Egypt societies as brother-sister royal marriages were probably more common than we realise and a female consort becoming the pharaoh on the passing of her husband once again probably not completely bizarre and unusual. Fast forward to the year 1881 CE and Egypt was an autonomous state within the Ottoman Empire, officially called the Khedivate of Egypt. A man by the name of Ahmed Abd el-Rasul stumbled across 
an ancient Egyptian royal treasure trove at the Theban necropolis. Now, Ahmed Abd al-Razul and his brother had seemingly been living off the loot of royal tombs for a number of years, as this was a time of the trade of ancient Egyptian artefacts, and there was money to be made. And records were kept of certain transactions, which indicate all of these things. The Ebers Papyrus was purchased in Luxor at around the period of the Abd el-Rasul's family trade. When Ahmed Abd el-Rasul stumbled across the royal treasure trove we mentioned, it appears that it was a little bit too much to be able to keep quiet, and as such he openly declared it. His reason for stumbling across it was that he lost his goat. Whether this is the whole story, I'll leave you, the listener, to decide. The most astonishing find at this site was the huge cache of mummies, and due to some of the accompanying inscriptions, experts were able to determine that these were the mummies of various pharaohs, including Amos I, Amenhotep I, Thutmose I, and Thutmose II, alongside many other pharaohs and high-standing officials of the 18th, 19th, 20th and 21st dynasties. It was determined that these mummified corpses were brought together during the 21st dynasty for their own preservation and protection, and that they were not all buried at the same place upon their deaths. Thutmose the third. Another pharaoh that was found among the royal cache in the tomb known as TT320 at Deir el-Bahari was Thutmose III. Thutmose III was the son of Thutmose II, but not of Hatshepsut, who was actually his aunt, but the half-sister wife of Thutmose II. Thutmose III's reign was very significant due to the sheer amount of military campaigns that he carried out. This was still the 15th century BCE, so we are still a good 150 years before the Battle of Kadesh. However, it was the king of Kadesh who rallied the local Canaanite states to challenge the advancing Egyptians under the leadership of Thutmose III. The story of this encounter was recorded by the Egyptians. Thutmose III saw the uprising as an opportunity to assert his reputation on the world stage and was happy to rise to the challenge. The year was 1457 BCE. Thutmose III had the benefit of Egypt's previous encounters with the Hyksos to provide his army with the knowledge of chariotry and it is with this and Thutmose III's strategical fearlessness that the Egyptians had slowly become a formidable force. The coalition of Canaanite forces waited outside of Megiddo in anticipation of the arrival of Thutmose's Egyptians. Thutmose outwitted the coalition by approaching Megiddo via a narrow pass and this would allow Thutmose to lead his troops into battle on his electrum-plated 
chariot. Electrum is a naturally occurring alloy containing gold and silver. A major battle appears to have taken place between Thutmose's forces and the surprised Canaanite coalition. Both armies were severely depleted by the encounter, but ultimately the superior tactics of Thutmose caused the remainder of the coalition army to flee back into the safe confines of the city of Megiddo. The Egyptians took their share of the abandoned equipment and besieged the city. The siege would go on for months before it surrendered. All coalition leaders were stripped of their authority and their children taken back to Egypt to be educated in the loyalty to the Egyptian empire before being allowed back to their homes. The two armies are suggested to have been of similar size, maybe both over 10,000 strong. Despite over 8,000 coalition soldiers being killed, it is reported that maybe as many as 4,000 Egyptians were also killed. So it was a brutal ancient battle. Ultimately, the Egyptians were now major players in the lands of the Levant, which did not please the Mitanni, who were the dominant force of influence in that region at the time. Thutmose III is also accredited with the expansion of the Egyptian kingdom as far south as the fourth cataract of the Nile, which was unprecedented as previously the Egyptian kingdoms had only secured the river as far as the second cataract. Egypt was at its greatest extent. Akhenaten. So Egypt would be at its most powerful extent for some time after Thutmose III's lifetime and right up into the 14th century BCE. Various pharaohs ruled Egypt and maintained its great extent. Thutmose III's bloodline would continue the dynasty until his great-grandson Amenhotep III became the pharaoh in the early 14th century BCE. This was a great cultural period of the new kingdom. Amenhotep III would have a son who would succeed him as the pharaoh of Egypt and he would come to reign as Amenhotep IV. Amenhotep IV is an incredibly unique and important individual when it comes to discussing the course of events of the new kingdom. Now, traditionally, the Theban dynasties of the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom regarded Amun as the prime deity of the city of Thebes in favour of Montu. When the New Kingdom emerged out of Thebes, Amun's status as an important deity became a national thing. However, at some point during Amenhotep IV's reign, he decided that things needed to change. He and his wife, Nefertiti, the heads of Egypt at a time of great wealth and power, decided to alter the religious position of the country. Amenhotep IV is believed to have despised the power that the Church of Amun had in Egypt, and he outlawed the worship of Amun and any other deity other than 
his own chosen deity, Artan, the sun disk. This was utterly radical. Not only did Amenhotep IV introduce Artanism as the kingdom's religion, but due to his outlawing of other worship, Artanism changed Egypt from polytheistic to monotheistic, something that apparently happened to the Jewish people many hundreds of years later in respect of their deity Yahweh. Amenhotep IV changed his own name to Akhenaten, which translates to effective for Aten. And he would move Egypt's capital city to Amarna, a city that he designed and built for the worship of Aten. Excavations from Amarna, which exists as an archaeological site in the Minya governorate of modern Egypt, suggest that Akhenaten did not wake up one morning and completely overhaul the entire religious attitude of Egypt. Due to the fact that many artefacts relating to Egypt's other deities have been discovered there from this period, it suggests that Akhenaten probably tried to gradually impose his will over the people of Egypt. The people of Egypt were really not ready to break away from hundreds of years of religious tradition and belief, and this only served to strain the relationship between the people and their pharaoh. Akhenaten would have a son who would also receive a name relating to the sun disk deity Aten. His name was Tutankhaten, which translates as the living image of Aten. After Akhenaten's lifetime, the Amarna period which represented his will to change the religion of Egypt came to an end. Akhenaten would come to be regarded as a heretic, even by his own son Tutankhaten, who would allow the religion of Egypt to return to its original condition and subsequently change his own name to honour the Theban god Amun, and therefore he would come to be known as Tutankhamun. As we previously discussed previously when talking of sister wives in Egypt, it may be the case that Tutankhamun was the product of a sexual relationship between his father, Akhenaten, and Akhenaten's own sister. This is strongly suggested by DNA tests of mummified remains. Worse still is the fact that Tutankhamun's wife was actually his half-sister, Anka Senarmen, daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Tutankhamun and his half-sister would attempt to procreate. Now, modern science tells us that incestuous relationships do not produce the healthiest offspring, and we have the suggestion of incestuousness going on in the Egyptian royal family in absolute abundance, possibly believing that royal blood was in some way divine and this practice was wholly correct. Tutankhamun was the father of two stillborn daughters. Tutankhamun himself suffered from cleft palate, scoliosis, bone fusion of the neck and a deformity of the foot caused by defective bone tissue. Could all of this have been the result of too much inbreeding? We also know that Tutankhamun was bitten by mosquitoes and probably caused him to contract malaria and we know this thanks to the DNA studies of his mummified body.
This is reported to be the earliest known proven case of a human contracting malaria. Nonetheless, it does appear that Tutankhamun, no more than a teenager when he died, was held in great esteem by his people who deified him during his lifetime, possibly due to the fact that he restored the Egyptian ability to worship Amun and the pantheon of deities that were traditional to the Egyptians. His tomb in the Valley of the Kings was almost completely intact when it was discovered in 1922. Over 5,000 artefacts were found buried alongside the young pharaoh. One of the most iconic and recognisable artefacts of ancient Egyptian culture is the golden death mask of Tutankhamun recovered from his tomb. The golden mask was carefully created with the addition of, of lapis lazuli, quartz, obsidian, carnelian, turquoise, faience and other precious and semi-precious stones. This demonstrates a richness in the trade network at the very least. The mask and the pharaoh himself are highly iconic of ancient Egypt. Magazines and books on the general subject of ancient Egypt frequently feature the image of the death mask among their cover art. This is where we're going to leave the story this week. You may be asking about the 19th and 20th dynasties of the New Kingdom and why they have been left out. Well, this is all part of the bigger plan. Next week, we're going to have a very special kind of episode called a profile episode. Just like the battle episodes, every so often we're going to have an episode which focuses on a particular individual. Our first profile episode will be all about the 19th dynasty New Kingdom Pharaoh Ramesses II. The week after, in episode 17, we will have another of our battle episodes which will focus on the Battle of Kadesh. After that, we will have a fascinating episode on the fundamental undercurrent to the entire ancient Egyptian culture, their religion, before we tie up the New Kingdom and scrutinise what happened in its direct aftermath during episode 19. We will also take a closer look at the weaponry of the Egyptians and compare it to the weaponry of those that we already know about and the contemporary weapons of other cultures before we summarise the entire ancient Egyptian period in one episode. So there's plenty more ancient Egyptian history to look forward to. And I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Now, those of you that follow the History of the World podcast on social media channels such as Facebook and Twitter will be aware that the History of the World podcast is now affiliated with a YouTube channel. And the YouTube channel is the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. And it's run by a gentleman called Nick Barkside. And what he's done this week, and uh, it's uh, available through the History of the World podcast Facebook page as a link. You can link directly through to the video that he's made, uh, which is basically um, he's taken the audio from the late Bronze Age Collapse episode of the History of the World podcast and he's added some imagery to it. He's done his own little presentation at the start of it, which has been very gracious to me and the podcast itself. 
and uh, hopefully you know we can attract a few more listeners to the podcast through that way anyway if you go to the youtube channel um i would highly recommend you do that in any case even if you've listened to the uh the late bronze age collapse episode or you don't tend to um listen to the history of the world podcast through a visual forum uh, i would still recommend highly that you go to it and subscribe to his channel it is packed full of history information documentaries and um and you will spend hours on there just looking and reading and watching all of these youtube videos he's a, he's got over 18,000 subscribers so it's a very successful and popular channel so i highly recommend it thanks very much to nick for his work and his support of the history of the world podcast and uh you know hopefully we'll see things growing and getting bigger and better Okay, um, I'm going to need to give some praise at this point to the food soldier, Brendan Wood. I've been going on about him for a long time now because he's done this great thing. He's run the London Marathon. He made it round the course successfully. I couldn't believe how quickly he got round. He must be super fit. He'd done the course in 3 hours 44 minutes. Now, if you did not choose to even look at his donations page, at his, at his uh, charity page. What's wrong with you? There's no harm in looking, and even if you can spare a pound or a dollar, just go on there, donate it to this fantastic cause that he was running for. It was the um, it was the Princess Royal Trust for Carers, and uh, he, he undertook this great um, thing, running the London Marathon, done the course in three hours, 44. Um... Brendan Wood, hats off to you, sir. Fantastic performance. I hope that you raised a great deal of money for your chosen cause, which I, um, which I can see is a, is very, very close to your heart. And um, I'm really, really honoured to be able to call you one of my listeners because you are you are a gentleman and you've uh, achieved something wonderful in your lifetime, a lasting legacy. So well done to that man and. Uh, Please uh, heap your praises for him on the Facebook page. Once again, don't want to sound like a broken record, but want to uh, give a shout out to Ryan Stitt at the History of Ancient Greece podcast for his continued support of the History of the World podcast. Thank you, Ryan. I don't think I ever did uh, thank Caleb Rowe for his kind review of the podcast on Facebook. He recommended... Uh, he recommended the History of the World podcast. A very logical and analytical glimpse into the distant past. I love history, but I've never studied much prehistory. I love it. Uh, yep, it's, uh, we've said it before, I'll say it again, prehistory tends to get overlooked. And uh, it, was, uh, it was great fun doing the first volume and uh, no regrets whatsoever there was a lot of interesting information there a lot to be learned and it was an absolute pleasure to do so i'm pleased that people are uh, appear to have enjoyed it right i think i'm going to start doing something now where i pick on an entire country so uh, today i'm going to pick on canada so all Canadians listening to this podcast, and I know uh, there's plenty of you that do. My analytics uh, demonstrate that to me. There's certainly 
um, well, over, you know, certainly a few hundred people listening from Canada. Um, what you haven't done is you haven't written a review about the podcast or given it a rating on uh, on Apple Podcasts. So I want you to go there directly. If it's the only good deed you do today, go to iTunes, go to Apple Podcasts directly and give the History of the World podcast a five-star review and uh, put uh, a little comment as to what you like about the History of the World podcast and that will help me massively. So it will save me asking you for money, left, right and centre. Uh, a review can be just as good and it doesn't cost you anything. So go and do it now if you're from Canada. Uh, I've got time just to read out a review on Castbox for the History of the World podcast from E.G. Young. Uh, he's put, I've discovered your podcast about three weeks ago and I'm hooked. I'm an ancient history and prehistory researcher and writer and I think your podcast is brilliant. I'm at episode 19 and I've enjoyed them all so far. Keep up the good work, Eric from California. That is an incredibly kind and... Um, a warm review, Eric, and I, I really do appreciate it. And thank you so, so much. Well, I think that's about it for another week on the History of the World podcast. Thank you so much for your time listening to the podcast and supporting the podcast. Next week, Ancient Egypt still, and we're going to be doing a special profile episode. The first of many profile episodes we'll be doing on a particular individual. And our first one will be on the Pharaoh... Ramesses the second so we'll find out a lot more about him and the uh, and the kingdom that surrounded him and the circumstances that surrounded him as well so uh, look forward to that one next week it's going to be a good one and uh, thank you ever so much and we'll see you again in a week's time the history of the world podcast is available on many different podcast platforms so please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.